This is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings, and I'm your host, Greg Campion. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. If you like the show and want to hear more from us, just search Bearings on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click subscribe or visit us on bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. On today's show, I spoke with David Nagel, head of Bearings Multi-Strategy Fixed Income Group. David and his team manage a variety of strategies across the investment grade spectrum, from corporate credit to securitized credit to developed market sovereigns. David's been at the firm since 1986. Two main things jumped out at me from today's discussion. You know, the triple B market is is getting a lot of press these days. And I think David did a really nice job of walking us through how he and his team are approaching it. And I think it's a little more nuanced than, than what you might infer from the headlines. On the ABS side, I think David did a really nice job of talking us through the growth that that market has seen and what have been some of the drivers behind that growth and also how ABS can fit into an investment grade portfolio today. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, David Nagel, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. Um, so I think it's a really opportune time to uh, to have you here today because there's so much going on in credit markets, right? So we, we've got everybody uh, really focused on where we are in the credit cycle overall. We've got everybody really focused on, uh, you know, things like the the growing size of the triple B market, right? There's There's just so many eyeballs on this space right now, and there's just so many headlines being generated. I, I guess one of the areas that's that's uh, obviously under the microscope uh, the most, as it should be, really, is the yield curve and rates and what's going on there. So maybe let's start there. Tell me a little bit about what you're seeing when you look at the yield curve today and what it's telling you. Yeah, so boy, <laughs> you're right. There's an awful lot going on and a lot of focus on on many different things, but it does, in a sense, all come back to, I think, the Fed, the economy, and the yield curve. And to your point, what is the yield curve telling us? Um, it's telling us a, a lot of things. Um, and there's a lot of different interpretations around exactly what it means. Uh, personally, uh, I would be a little careful, a little cautious for a couple of reasons. Um, well, let me set the stage by saying that, that old timers like, like myself and, and others uh, often will point to the yield curve as one of the best leading indicators of recession or slow yep. growth. Um, and while it is true that they've always tended to coincide with one of those periods of slow growth, recession or not, um, the problem is, and, and the academic literature will support this, I believe, um, the timing of the signal from an inverted yield curve can be um, early, right. it can be late, right. and right. it can be coincident. Yep. Um, and a lot of folks are less than precise when they define what yield curve they're looking at. I'm curious actually about that and what you think is the most relevant maturities to look at. Yeah, well, people use all different ones. I think uh, personally, three-month tenure is the one that I, I'm pretty sure the Fed tends to focus on. I think the academic literature tends to support more than others um, and various quant studies I've seen. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of folks today are, are focused particularly on the very short yield curves because they've actually inverted for the first time in a long time, whereas the others have been bouncing close to zero but not quite there yet. Yeah. It's a good signal, kind of like I, I liken it to, I have a, a fever, a low-grade fever. Yeah, there's something I should pay attention to, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be deathly ill tomorrow. Right. And I guess there's other factors at play too, right? There's technical factors in addition to what the fundamentals are, right? Yeah, so exactly right. And we've had a different type of Fed cycle with uh, non-traditional 
means of policy support, um, quantitative easing, um, yield curve control, things like that, uh, an explosion in the size of the Fed's balance sheet versus prior cycles. So, you know, the actual signals may be a bit distorted by some of that. On the long end of the curve, which typically uh, is, is far more concerned with inflation dynamics through the cycle, um, we've seen a lot of pension buying. So there's folks that are pointing to the fact that uh, perhaps the, the stronger buy interest on the long end has distorted that signal as well. So, um, you know, there's changes in, in the dynamics of the market this cycle. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess, in, you know, as we think about what else investors are focused on, obviously, um, Fed policy is a, always a, a, a big a big deal. Um, but something else that's been coming up more and more in the headlines uh, is this growing size of the triple B uh, corporate credit market. So uh, we've seen uh, various uh, agencies flag uh, concerns there. We've seen uh, you know a lot of headlines uh, on this um, on this topic. So I'm curious. Um, as you and, and your team kind of look at uh, this part of the uh, investment-grade corporate credit market, uh, is it concerning for you? Are you expecting, um, you know, a big shoe to drop here and, and, and have all sorts of negative consequences? Or do you think it's overblown at this point? There's been a tremendous amount of coverage, frankly, around the, uh, the high-grade market, the corporate market in particular, this issue that you raise of, of the triple Bs. And just, you know, definitionally, um, probably worth mentioning, triple Bs are the lowest investment grade category. Um, they sit right at the edge of, of high grade and high yield. Um, historically, they were a smaller portion of the high grade market. Uh, and part of the reason I think they've they've garnered so much attention is just the fact that over the past 10, 15 years or so, um, that portion, i.e. the triple B piece, has grown to now more than 50% of the high-grade market. So what used to be a market of triple A's, double A's, single A's, and triple B's, very high quality to, to less so, yeah. um, is now heavily dominated by the triple B space. You know, these, these are large, large companies, you know, Apple, Oracle, a lot of the energy companies. You know, the point is, I think that's what's causing people to focus on, on the space. The second major reason we're focused there is we have seen some downgrades. Um, there have been more downgrades in the past couple of months from uh, single A to triple B than we've seen since 2015 when we had the major energy crisis around uh, following the big drop in oil back then. So um, there are some some tangible signs that people are, are grasping on to, to highlight what they might see as a risk. Um, but I think you're right. At the end of the day, our feeling is, uh, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm leveraging heavily here off the views of our high-grade corporate team uh, led by uh, Nat Barker and Charles Sanford. Um, and in speaking to those guys and many of the analysts and PMs on their team, we would agree with you. It's it's an overblown fear, in large part, um, for a bunch of reasons. Um, you know, remember, um, a lot of the companies that that still live and and breathe in this space are are again very large, very stable, um, lots of scale size businesses that generate big cash flow, and and earnings. So um, they are incentivized to stay. In investment grade, um, as opposed to falling lower, and Is many that just of them have like a cost of capital uh, incentivization. Well, that's a big one, sure. Although uh, it's interesting you raise that point of cost of capital because, um, as Nat said to me recently, you know, triple B is the new single A, right? Um, it used to be that companies sort of averaged around that single A spot yeah. in the capital structure, as we call it. Now it feels like the companies are much more 
willing to live maybe a notch lower at a high triple right. B kind of a level. And why is that? Well, I think a big part of it is what we've been going through for the past 10 years, i.e. Um, a very accommodative Fed, which has you know, really done a lot to boost corporate earnings and, and the health of corporations, generally speaking, um, meaning quality spreads that they have to pay to issue debt have gotten very small. And when you add that quality spread on top of the very low treasury yields, the all-in borrowing cost that these companies have had has been extremely low. Sure, sure. So, so you know, maybe they've been less penalized lately relative absolutely. to historically to having the credit rating drop into that triple B. Absolutely. Yeah. And with all spreads low, even if you went to downgrade by, not by choice, but by otherwise, uh, the penalty is just hasn't been all that large. So if you saw a big name like a Ford or, or, or someone else, I mean, it fell into high yield territory, how do you think that would be taken by the market? Do you think there would be ripple effects, that sort of thing? Yeah, so a couple of things there. Uh, you know, we have a pretty good relationship with the agencies. We, we deal with them a lot and we speak to them frequently. Um, so we have a pretty good sense for for what they're what they're thinking, and and we know they're they're very aware of the press comments. They're very aware of the you know criticisms, and so um, you know they've even been out saying that they think this is a little bit overdone, overblown. Um, so um, you know how does it play out? That the fear that most people are are verbalizing is that the agencies suddenly just decide to take a whole bunch of these companies down. And there have been a few notable cases where they've sort of warned people. Yep. You need to know this might be coming, but to me, that's maybe a good thing, right? They're they're giving a foreshadowing of what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. They're giving companies a last chance, yeah. and uh, so we're not as concerned that the agencies are going to go go rogue, so to speak, and just downgrade wholeheartedly a whole bunch of companies. Um, how does it play out from us the market side? Um, look, it's something that a lot of people are very worried about, and so um, if you get a couple of big notable drops, um, and there's a few companies floating around that that are in that possibility category, um, I think the market will will struggle for a bit to sort of sort things out. Um, but we've seen it before, and the double B universe or, or the high yield players will sort it out in, in pretty quick order and figure out that these are still solid companies, uh, most with very good prospects. And, and uh, you know, it's just a question of pricing at that point. Um, but there is one offsetting concern, and that's this liquidity issue that our guys have been, been talking about a bit. And it's really quite simple, and that is at Wall Street, um, given the need to hold more capital, uh, as they've been required to do over the past five, six, seven years, um, one of the ramifications of that is it's just more costly to, to have a corporate bond inventory on your trading books. And, sure. of yeah. course, Wall Street doesn't make money holding bonds. They make money trading bonds. Um, but they have to hold something, and the cost of holding them um, typically, you can look at LIBOR as a, as a proxy for mm-hmm. for their cost of balance sheet, and and that's been going up. Mm. So it's just a lot more expensive for them to hold bonds than it used to be. So, um, you know, will they be a natural backstop? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that that's a really good point. If you're if you ask what's different this time around versus last cycle, I guess you're dealing with a new regulatory regime where the banks have uh, new regulations that they're um, having to operate in. Yeah, I think your your point is well taken. That the markets have changed, liquidity has changed. Liquidity never goes out of style. I mean, everybody wants liquidity always. So something else that's that's changed is you know while we're all focused on what's going on with rates, what's going on in terms of uh, the uh, the economic environment, what does that mean for credit? Um, the market itself is not staying static, right? So the market continues to change. And we sit down and talk about investment-grade credit. 
uh, if it were 10 or 15 years ago, we might be just talking about bonds and sovereigns, right? So today, it's the, the market itself continues to expand. So let's talk a little bit about some of the opportunities that um, are out there in investment-grade credit world. Um, and I'm specifically thinking of the asset-backed security uh, market. I know this, this is something that you and your teams spend a lot, a lot of time looking at um, and sourcing opportunities. So I'd like to just understand wh- wh- why have we seen you know, the expansion of this market and do you expect, to, I guess, to continue to see that growth and, and, and what kind of opportunities is that kind of um, manifesting uh, itself in? Yeah, so it's a really good question, and it speaks to the the growth of and the expansion of the high grade market, as you as you mentioned. Um, having lived through the '80s and and seen the bond indices back then, when it was the Barclays or or Lehman at the time, government corporate bond index transition to the AG index to the global AG index to you know even more beyond that. Um, the truth is that the high grade market continues to expand, and one of the the big changes we've seen over the past few years, really post-crisis, has been in the securitized space, particularly this uh, asset-backed world, as you highlighted. These are markets that provide plenty of liquidity, plenty of opportunity, um, and and in some cases, growth and net growth in available supply. So, you know, as as Doug Trevelyan, the head of our our global securitized products group, is fond of reminding me, um, there's there's a much larger investor base the dealer base is larger and more in depth, and the issuer base is larger and more in depth. Yeah. So, so everything's kind of going the right way for the ABS space these days. And, yeah. Um, so, when you're talking about ABS, I mean, can you get can you give some examples just um, in terms of what are the specific kind of asset classes that we're that we're talking about here? Sure. I mean, in a, in a broad brush, we're talking about consumer and commercial asset-backed securities. So. Uh, consumer could be secured or unsecured personal loans. They could be student loans. Uh, on the commercial side, anything from aviation or airplane-backed deals to whole business franchise receivables to um, medical receivables. Virtually anything can be securitized nowadays if it has a has a steady cash mm-hmm. flow. Um, I think in the old days, it was largely a triple A, very high quality, very you know generally short maturity, very liquid market backed by automobile loans and credit card receivables. That's where the market sort of began. Um, but as, as we just talked nowadays, the, the underlying collateral types are much more diverse. Um, and, and obviously, it just makes for uh, uh, a lot more opportunity uh, yeah, in yeah. the market. So when I think about the analysis of some of uh, the corporate bonds that you and your team do, I know you're really kicking the tires and getting into the weeds on the balance sheets of these companies uh, and really understanding the credits themselves. I mean, as you think about conducting the, the fundamental analysis on uh, some of these ABS markets, I mean, what does that look like? Is that a similar process or is that a different process? Yeah, it's very similar. And our process is is really fundamentally driven bottom up, much like we do in all the other asset classes here at Bearings. So uh, again, Doug would say that, that first comes the company, then comes the collateral, then comes the deal structure, and finally they take their own proprietary tools and people and stress those deals. I mentioned that ABS for us is about consumer and commercial. You know, consumer is an interesting one from a research perspective because if you think about what's been going on here in, in the U.S. for sure, we've seen a, a slow but 
continued rise in overall debt levels. But but the truth is, um, the consumer today is in a much better place than he was five or ten years ago, mm-hmm. having either paid down debt or having now garnered enough income to cover that debt. So, um, you know, we, we just think that, generally speaking, um, you know, consumer credit fundamentals are much healthier than mm. than some other sectors that we look at, uh, and therefore, uh, it's just a great place to be looking for for uh, for opportunities. So, speaking of owning these asset-backed securities, um, I mean, do you think that it's appropriate to consider them as part of an overall investment-grade allocation? So, if you're an institutional investor, a big insurance company, pension fund, you know, maybe even if you're a financial advisor looking at constructing investment grade allocations for your clients. I mean, how do you think about the kind of interplay, I guess, between traditional corporate bonds and and some of these investment grade rated ABS instruments? Yeah, so back to my point about the growth in indices and the evolution of the market. I think there's still a lot of investors in the high grade space that are constrained either by their benchmark, which may have a lot of, say, sovereign debt, or mortgage-backed securities, or they're constrained by historic views around risk and return and perhaps even skewed in some of those asset classes by an experience they had 5, 10, 20 years ago. Um, and then there's the the growth of some of these new asset classes. CLOs as an asset class really didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago the way they do today um, for the high-grade buyer. Um, the asset-backed space, as we've just described, much expanded, you know, net issuance in the ABS space this this past year is up like 235 billion. It's probably one of the few, if maybe the only uh, net grower in terms of, of issuance um, recently when most of the other asset classes are shrinking. So um, you've had uh, an expansion of the high grade world, um, both laterally and, uh, you know, in terms of filling in the, the risk buckets. Mm-hmm. So you can buy good quality assets from AAA to B across a broad variety of, of types of instrument. Yeah. And still there's a lot of investors that are constrained around how much of that they can access. So uh, yeah, as you think about building portfolios, um, there's a lot of yield to be had in the high grade space. You can get pretty good diversification. They're not all necessarily correlated together like maybe they were when it was was just mortgages and treasuries. Yep. yep. Um, there's less correlation, so you can find some diversification benefit. Um, and uh, I, I love to remind people that you know, two or three years ago, uh, as a high-grade investor, <clears throat> we didn't get asked um, to come to too many uh, shows because our yields were so low. Uh, <laughs> with Treasury yields at one percent and spreads very small, you know, it was a very different market. Today, uh, we have high-grade bonds, good quality high-grade bonds in the four to five percent yield range, which historically, it's been a while since we can say that. And uh, I think a lot of folks are taking notice. So with this expanded market, I guess these different opportunities from the corporate bond spectrum to asset-backed securities and kind of up and down that investment grade rating spectrum, you know, we've started to see the emergence of more flexible strategies out there, whether you call them multi-credit or opportunistic a lot of different names, but basically strategies that can uh, buy a whole host of these uh, types of securities. W- what's your stance on those? We think they make a ton of sense. You know, in a world where um, you can only buy, for instance, an index relative strategy that has a lot of 
um, sovereign debt, you're really taking on an awful lot of interest rate risk. Um, frankly, that's been one of the difficulties that some in the space have, have had in the last year or two as the Fed has embarked on its tightening cycle. Rates have risen, especially on the short end, but, but a little bit on the longer end as well. And so you see price decline simply because rates have gone up. Um, so, you know, shorter duration strategies that, that garner their extra yield, if you will, by a diversified approach to credit just seem to make a lot of sense because you can control the various risk levers. In IG, it's about credit risk and it's about duration risk. And how you handle those two things primarily will determine the success or failure of your strategy. And so uh, a diversified credit basket, we think, is a great way to complement a shorter duration interest rate duration portfolio as a way to provide solid returns through the cycle. And especially since, as we've proven, credit is an area that, that we think you can add value um, with deep credit resources and careful selection of, of individual names. Great. Dave, we've, we've covered a lot in our discussion here today from yield curve to talking about the ABS market and more. Um, as, you, as you sit back and you, and you assess the prospects for 2019 and you look at Bearings clients and you think, okay, what, what challenges are they solving for? Um, I guess, what are your main takeaways as you look at the, the investment grade markets and the opportunities and, and risks that are out there today? Sure. Well, we've talked about, uh, to some extent, the changing structures of the market and the opportunities that that's presented. So I think that's an important fact to keep in mind going forward. Um, also, yields are higher. Spreads are a bit wider here um, of late. Um, investment grade spreads, for instance, are, are moving back towards what I would call a more normal, historical, middle ground kind of a spot, um, which makes sense. The economy is doing well, but not as well as it was. And so um, we think the high grade space, broadly speaking, and some of these asset classes that we've talked about um, provide a reasonable place for investors to boost not only the income of their portfolio, but to an extent, the total return over time. Yeah, that's great. Dave, it's been a really enlightening discussion today. I really appreciate you joining me. Sure. Thanks, Greg. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from the team here at Bearings, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Bearings. Or you can find us on the web at bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. Thanks again.